0: Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock, and I'm Paige Wallace.
1: Today we are talking about teaching drama, and we have a guest with us, a guest co-host. We
0: have Dr. Ramsey Matthews.
2: Hey guys, thanks for inviting me to this tiny desk.
0: <laughs> We're not nearly that <laughs> big. It, we do it's have this tiny traveling, desks though.
2: It's <laughs> traveling tiny desk. Thank you for coming down to Florida and visiting with me.
0: And now Ramsey's trying to get us canceled for traveling during the pandemic, <laughs> which is a lie,
1: we're not in Florida. <laughs> in the interwebs, forever in the interwebs. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with drama and theater, and kind of give people your kind of background with this?
2: I suppose maybe you're asking for my credentials.
1: Yeah, I need to see your like- license to teach theater. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so, so besides my PhD in poetry, I have an MFA in poetry and I have an MA lit degree in modern American drama mostly and a little bit of British drama. And then uh, back in the day, I took acting classes out in LA and I did stand in and stunt work and a little bit of acting. I've got a few credits on IMDB out in LA, but I wouldn't consider myself an actor.
1: But still, it's kind of exciting because then you have seen all the different sides of it. That's not any sort of credentials I have when teaching drama. I'm always seeing it like purely through the literature lens rather than kind of what it means to act or be a part of production or anything like that.
2: I really love drama and uh, I love my, my MA degree in, in drama. Uh, so I went to the department and said, hey, guys, I noticed this is on the catalog. I want to teach this and they said yes and I taught it for two years and I the first year I taught it primarily as a literature class and Mm -hmm. it's a 3000 level literature class and the second year I taught it with a creative writing component I made the uh, students write a 10 minute play
0: oh very very cool Ramsey what what's your favorite play to teach
2: that's like asking me what's my favorite ice cream.
0: Well, if you could teach any play like right now in this moment, what would it be?
2: So on, on the final exam, I asked my students what's their favorite play. And I agree with them in that of the, well, the first year we re- read 15 to 18 plays. Oh, wow. And that sounds like a lot, but it's not like reading a novel. It's a novel takes, you know, days usually and particularly for students. And, and you can read a, a stage play in one to three hours okay except for Shakespeare but Mm -hmm. modern drama usually can be read in one to three hours and most of the students said their two favorite plays were the ones we read were A Streetcar Named Desire and uh, Death of a Salesman classics yeah so I don't think you can go wrong with those and the cool thing about teaching drama from world war ii on is that there's a lot of good modern productions that the students can go to and watch them
0: oh yeah so tell us more about that with um like adaptations do you like work that into your syllabus where they have to watch them do you show clips from class do you just tell them like hey you can also watch the adaptation like how do you how does that factor in
2: yeah i'm not sure i would call it an adaptation in the same way that you would talk about the Coen brothers adaptation of old, uh, um, no country for old men, okay. which is which is similar to the book and different to the book. The thing about a play in screen production or modern production is it's it pretty much follows word for word, the uh, stage production. Okay. So the differences in, in when you, with, with the actors, there's um, it's like, um, Waiting for Godot, if you watch that with Steve Martin and Robin Williams, it's going to be a different production than it is with two other people who aren't comedians. Or you watch Fences with Denzel Washington, and then you watch it with somebody else. So the difference is not in how it's... Well, there's some difference in how it's played because the actors are different, but the words are the same as written on the page.
0: Do you show clips in class from...
2: Any of the plays that you assign? Yes, I do. I uh, that's um, Well, let me, let me start back at the beginning, What I how I, I lay out the class. I divide the group into... Uh, don't you hate it when there's prime a prime number of students and you know how to divide them equally? Because uh, <laughs> I, I divide them into groups of three or four, and then their group members are the go-to when they have questions. We read 15, 19 plays. Uh, the first week or two, I primarily talk about reading plays. Reading plays is... Nobody knows how to read poetry if you don't read poetry on a regular basis. Right. And plays can be the same way, except you can imagine characters in your mind as your favorite characters. I tell them, if you can't find this online in a video, imagine this person is Tom Hanks and this merged mm-hmm. person is Meryl Streep. And this person is so-and-so and this person is so-and-so. And they're talking to you off the page. So that's one way to get into it. And also in the Norton, I use the... Uh, the second volume of the Norton as my primary text, there's a small section about reading plays.
0: Yeah, I think one of the questions we had for you was about like the skill sets that you try and give them for approaching plays, like what they need to do differently than reading poetry or novels.
2: I think my primary goal was to get them to enjoy reading plays. Okay. Uh, And that meant, very little theory yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, and that meant uh, reading plays and they would uh, I would have them volunteer and if they wouldn't volunteer I would pick on someone to read portions of the play that we were discussing that day
1: voluntold
2: yeah (laughs) and I was thinking oh no go ahead
1: No, I was thinking before when you said that Shakespeare is is particularly hard to read, that I think the only thing that helped me get through like my high school and early Shakespeare classes was that I had a children's Shakespeare book, which turned it all into prose. So I could focus on like, once we were actually reading the plays themselves, figuring out the form rather than what is happening here. Um, But obviously they don't have the children's version of like modern playwrights and all of that.
2: Well, I don't think that Shakespeare is difficult to read. I think it just, it takes longer because of the five act structure than uh, most modern plays are in two acts or three acts or in one really long act. So um, I think, and I I would tell the students that the, the play is this many pages. The, the one play that was probably the most difficult to read that wasn't the longest one on the page was Waiting for Godot. Right. Because
1: mm-hmm.
2: you just don't know what's going on. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but the cool thing about uh, plays, one of the many cool things is that, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm sure none of the students did this, but you have the opportunity to read it twice during the week because it takes so little time. And I think a play is like that. I think you read it the first time to become acclimated to the world. And then you read it the second time to discover what the writer and the characters are doing. So I divided the, the class into, for the literature, well, I did it really for the, the other one too, uh, the midterm and a final. And every day before class, I did a, I had a pop quiz, which they knew about. And it was three questions based on the reading for that day. So, and, that, and, and I, they handed in a piece of paper, and that's how I kept attendance, and also how I asked them to keep up with the reading. And the midterm and the final came from those pop quizzes. Okay. Then, then there was always uh, one essay question uh, on the uh, midterm, and I think the final maybe had two. I'll give you six, and you picked two. Uh, and then the cool thing about at Florida State University is the theater department is extraordinary. And I would look at the season, and we would always read at least one of the plays that was being performed. Because one of the requirements for the class was that the students had to go to two theater presentations. This is before COVID, obviously,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and write a review of those plays. So they had to write two theater reviews. Uh, and I had a lot of students from the uh, theater department taking the class. And I also had some BFA actors taking the class, which the actors, their input really helped a lot of the other students as far as acting. The, uh, every student had to, at the end of the class, the final day, they would act out a scene from one of the plays. And I told them they had to be off book, which meant they had to memorize it. But I'm not a great memorizer myself, so I didn't blame them if they didn't. Uh, most of them would have a small cheat sheet. The BFA actors would memorize it, you know, and it would be it would be over the top good. I structured the class, and there was also one final critical paper, a short paper, is a five page paper uh, on one of the plays.
0: Ramsey, that sounds like a really good class. Like I, we had so many questions mapped out to that that you made me think about more just in talking about the structure of your class. I wanted to ask about uh, you think you have to read a play twice.
2: I wish they would.
0: Yes. Okay. And so. Do I know you, they don't. don't. I
2: know do they don't. Know. I, I do.
0: Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And then the other thing I wanted to ask about was what kind of things do you talk about with performance with them? So you mentioned that you had actors in your class, but, and also whether you, you know, you have acted before. And so what kind of things are, how do you talk about that and the text that's on the page in front of them?
2: I think the first way to, to introduce them into that is to get them to read in class out loud to everybody else in the class. Right. Uh, everybody's tentative about that. I think they're always surprised at themselves when they do start speaking uh, and that nobody's judging them because everybody mm-hmm. is tentative about it and shy, except for the, the BFA actors. They're, they're like, they'll, they'll stand on their head and say it. So that's the first way into it and, and getting them into that routine every class until they start rehearsing their scenes for the final at the end of the class. Well, with performance, um, Beckett, Beckett is a good one. Waiting for Godot, I would, I would introduce each writer and tell them what the writer's influences were in the world uh-huh. and also in their personal life. Like with Beckett, he loved physical comedy. And he loved cabaret, and he loved uh, those kinds of where you go to a stage and you see people making fun of themselves. And and most people don't think of Waiting for Godot as a comedy. But when you have Robin Williams playing in it on stage, you can't help but think of the the comedy and and all this big, long tragedy. One of the first things I I was thinking about this the other day is in, in the opening week, I tell them about the major influences for most of these writers who were born before World War II were the 1918 flu, which killed 5% of the population on earth. Uh, and, and it was over 500,000 Americans. There was something like 15 million people died in India. And I, and I thought, well, that'll just never happen here, but we're, we're approaching 500,000 Americans now. So there's, that influenced many of these writers. Uh, World War I, in which most of the people who died were in the military. Uh, World War II, where most of the people who died were civilians, and in the great the stock market crash and the Great Depression, how those things influenced these plays. Uh, for instance, Death of a Salesman. Arthur Miller's father ran a I want to say I think it was a garment business. It was some kind of clothing business, and he committed suicide by jumping out of a window because of the, the great the stock market crash, which There you go. You've got Death of a Salesman. Right. Um, Well, I start with Brecht. I could do a whole, you could do a whole semester on Bertolt Brecht. And I I do The Good Person of Sejuan, which is this, I don't know if you guys have read that, but it's this uh, fantastic, funny, gender-bending, she plays a man and she plays a woman. And the man that she plays gets everything because he's a man. And as a woman, she can't get anything. So that's why she, she plays the other role. And then we talk about A Streetcar Named Desire. And I show them Richard Burton screaming in the Stella scene uh, when he was 22. And then uh, Death of a Salesman with, uh, I think Dustin Hoffman has played that twice. He plays it once as the young son Biff. And then he plays it later as Willie Loman, the father. And Waiting for Godot. And then we get to A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry, who I think she was. Would- was the first African-American woman to receive the New York Critics Circle Award for that play. And this was in 1959. I think it's right before 1960. At a time when she wasn't going to win the Pulitzer because she was an African-American woman. Right. And it deserved the Pulitzer Prize. So with Raisin in the Sun, I get to introduce Sidney Poitier. And I tell them, this is the Denzel of the 50s and the 60s. And so we watch the opening scene and a portion of A Raisin in the Sun with um, Sidney Poitier. Um, And then we do Edward Albee, The Zoo Story, and Harold Pinter, The Homecoming. Harold Pinter is an extraordinary, strange writer. He won the, uh, he's British, he won the the Nobel Prize. He's also written a bunch of movies. Uh, um, And him... It's easier to understand when the students see the scenes on film because on the page, they come off as awkward and mean. Well, that's where performance comes in, where the it's not meant as mean. It's meant as subversive, perhaps, but not necessarily mean. And then before the midterm, we get to Sam Shepard, who he's the reason I started reading drama. You guys know Sam Shepard?
1: Um, not, but like intimately. <laughs> Great actor.
2: If you look him up, you would know his face. Uh, he's he's act. He's been an actor forever. Mm-hmm. He won the uh, Pulitzer Prize for Buried Child. Uh, he's he's got all these short one act plays. Mm-hmm. He was a rock and roll guy. Okay. He played uh, in the right stuff, and he's been in a, uh, just tons of movies. It's the uh, mm-hmm. well, another movie that we I, we talk about towards the end is. Augustus sage County with uh, Sam Shepard and Meryl Street just an extraordinary cast and he plays the father in that. I'm interested
1: um, in it, like what you're you're talking about it seems like in the beginning you're talking a lot about the contemporary influences on the playwrights and how that manifests in their work and you can see it on stage. Do you talk in your classes like about how in adaptations of those works we bring in different contexts and different influences and I guess that goes also back to your question page about performance like how different performers are bringing their own interpretations and and influences and it just seems like it starts making this really complicated web <laughs> and I don't know how if you handle that in your class or if you're if that's too much to bring in in one course
0: well, I think I was thinking specifically about what Margaret's saying whenever you mentioned the 1918 flu and mm-hmm. how prior to te- like teaching this drama class prior to COVID, you told your students the, the context of the 1918 flu and you know, this, um, um, they had to imagine 5% of the world's population dying and teaching it post-pandemic, uh, they've experienced... Uh, of a global pandemic themselves and millions of people dying. And th- maybe their understanding of that moment is different than it would have been when two years ago or?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I, that's why I, I tell them these. I hope that uh, none of them or none of us ever have to experience a third world war mm-hmm. because with the progress of war, it looks like the civilians suffer the brunt of that but as far as performance um well so uh sam Shepard also wrote a play called true west and there's there's basically two characters there's one other character who's in it a little bit who plays the father but uh, true west was played on broadway by philip seymour hoffman and john c riley and those two guys memorized the whole play so that on a monday you would see philip seymour hoffman playing one role and John C. Riley playing the other, and on Tuesday they would switch, and and they would switch the roles, and so you can imagine with two great actors like that, just their presence is going to give something different as they speak different words and in different roles. So so I the actor's presence is important. We don't get into I don't get into acting, and mm-hmm. we don't talk about the mechanics of it because acting is. Uh, I took a year of acting classes and a year of improv classes, and after a year of both, I started to feel like I was glimpsing a tiny, tiny portion of what it is that actors do, uh, and I, I it it's overwhelming to me what what actors can. I tell them it's like martial arts, it's the kind of thing you have to do forever and mm-hmm. practice all the time to get good at. so what what I wanted to make them into was good readers of plays that they would pick up and read over and over and over.
0: And lovers of plays, that's
2: what <laughs> And lovers of plays. Yeah, and so the Norton, the second volume of the Norton is really good in that, I don't know what edition they're in now, but I was at the, I, my second year, they were, the third edition came out and they added to their benefit, they added many different new plays. Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun whats wasn't in the second edition, so they had to buy that separately. But it is in the third edition. Uh, Paula Bogle, How I Learned to Drive, is in there. Ruined by Lynn Nottage. Susan Lori Parks, The America Play, is in there. Susan Lori Parks was the first African American woman to win a Pulitzer, and she won it for Top Dog Underdog in the early 2000s. Unfortunately, that's not in the Norton. First year I taught it, they had to read that out of a, a separate playbook. But then, Lynn Nottage is the second African-American woman to win a Pulitzer, and she's won a Pulitzer twice already. She's won two Pulitzers. So we talk about that. We talk about, well, back to A Raisin in the Sun with Lorraine Hansberry. Part of the influence for that was that her father, he couldn't buy a house in a certain part of town that he wanted to buy a house in. And a large portion of the play is about that. Mama has saved up the money and just despite the white people in that neighborhood, she's going to buy a house anyway. So there was that's one of the things that informed Lorraine Hansberry. Yeah.
0: I want to ask about. So it sounds like you taught this class like a survey class. Yeah. Did you organize like the delivery of plays on theme or like year in terms of publication or something else?
2: The easiest way I, I thought about so many different ways. The easiest way was chronology. Okay. We went in order by the way, or when the, when the, not when they were written, but when they were first produced. Okay. And that's how they're arranged in the Norton. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. And
2: I, I thought about arranging them by themes. And then I realized that the overarching theme for all of the plays is the family, or the good, the bad, and the ugly of families okay there's there's there are LGBTQ themes there's uh, racism, there's politics there's gender identity I mean you get a play by like, uh, Madame M Butterfly by David Henry Quang, mm. based on a true story where the uh, I think it's a true story I want it to be a true story it is it is uh, where yeah. uh, the uh, British officer falls in love with this this performer. Opera this guy,
1: singer, yeah.
2: Yeah, this opera singer who turns out to be a man and also a spy and, and gets all this information out of him. So we talk about that. Angels in America, part one, Tony Kushner. There's uh, there are some wonderful film versions of that. Uh, there's And I tried to show them, I think it was with that play. I found one where maybe it was some high school kids did it. Mm-hmm. So there was no budget. <laughs> and it was great. And then you've got The HBO television series based on the play with Meryl Streep in it you know which is there's a lot of money involved in that but you can do these things on a shoestring if you want to.
1: Well I like that thinking about it chronologically if like for a survey course that would allow you I guess to look at the form of the play itself because I feel like At least from my experience, it was really easy to think when I was in high school and early undergrad of like drama as this like forgotten art. Like people write movies now, not plays, which is not the case. But seeing kind of it as an evolving art form, that the techniques change all of that. When you were talking about that chronology and the different themes, um, one of the things that jumped in my head was I took a theater class when I was in college and we had um, and I think for that class, I saw uh, look back in anger, and learning that it was the first time that there was an ironing board on stage. And it was like considered this shocking event that you would show a woman ironing on stage. <laughs> and thinking about that, like what's considered appropriate to include in art, what's considered obscene, how that changes. And I feel like the stakes are higher for that in theater than they are novels because of that immediacy of the audience in the same room where, where the events are taking place. And so thinking about how like looking at that chronology would really allow you to track that. So I guess both the structure form, but also the content, like what is art and what is not. Yeah, that's really interesting, Margaret.
2: Yeah, I think theme, theme goes along with that also. I, um, there wasn't enough time mm-hmm. in the semester to go back to Chekhov. I wish we could have, but check off as much as anyone, introduce themes about women as independent. And, and so I, but Breck, uh, the good person of Sejuan, is about that. And it's, it's funny and fun, but it's also about, I can't get this done, but so I've got to dress up as a man so I can get this done.
1: Mm-hmm. Do does. you feel like there are themes that would be easier, or I don't know if easier is the right term, but more. That drama classes would be better suited for exploring than like a traditional literature course. I don't know if that totally makes sense, but my high school English teacher once told us that King Lear was Shakespeare's worst play, but best work. Because he said like the themes that he was doing in that, it was too hard to translate, or the the actions rather, were too hard to translate onto stage. Like the out vile jelly bits of like pulling out people's eyes and like having someone think they're on a cliff, but not be on a cliff. I recently saw a version of King Lear that did it all very well, but it's always stuck with me that like, okay, so you can have a work that's great, but makes for bad theater. And you can have something that makes for good theater, but maybe not as good of a written work. And so does that mean that theater lends itself more easily to certain themes or, or issues or whatever, which is a big question. So, and I'm one of you on the spot.
2: I don't. I don't know what bad theater means. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, I guess
1: ineffective. Not necessarily bad, but just like does the intent translate or suspension of disbelief? Like, can you still have that same sort of suspension of disbelief?
2: Kind of talking about bad theater. But so that's that's a perception. And Waiting for Godot, I think it shut down either the first performance or in the first week. There were people, people were angry and they had to close the curtain so that the actors didn't get beat up. (sighs) And it's become this, it's more than a cult classic. I mean, it's a, a modern, it's a piece of modern drama about the existentialist human condition. So the audience isn't always right about, theater or movies, I think. But you you certainly want to try and cast the best actors that you can for the roles.
1: I I guess like now I'm thinking to maybe explain myself a little bit better. Like I took a graduate course on radical middle brow with Ned Stuckey French. and, And it was really interesting to see like how writers were using these different forms to get the mainstream american involved in different political issues so we looked at like silent spring uh we looked at uh is it john hershey's i'm forgetting but anyways one of the works we looked at was we talked about recently um page was lillian smith's uh strange fruit and it was adapted into a play and i was really interested in the play was generally considered to not be a success Um, the novel incredibly successful. I think it was a book of a month, but the play was not, didn't work as well. And I've been thinking about it ever since, about like, why? Why did the novel seem to work for audiences and the play didn't? And I do think part of it is like being in the same room, like that when looking at scenes of a lynching and scenes of graphic racial and sexual violence, that the novel allows you to have a safer distance and to watch it on stage. But in some ways like that immediacy, does that make it more effective for exploring these issues? Like, shouldn't it be hard to look at it and not feel safe and comfortable when talking about these issues? Not to say that literature on the page can explore these effectively, but just wondering if the theater and drama lends itself to other approaches or nuances that might be unavailable to other forms?
2: Well, I think that anytime a writer says, I'm gonna change everybody's mind, mm-hmm. they're, they're setting themselves up for failure. I think that at first it has to be about entertainment and then quickly followed by informing but most of the time you're going to be preaching to the choir anyway and the thing about a theater production is is yes the playwright might sit in a room and put this piece together but theater is a collaborative Endeavor. The playwright usually comes. There's a few exceptions. David Mamet says you're not going to change any of my words, and this is how it's going to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Arthur Miller didn't say it that way, but he wrote so well that nobody had to change his word. But you come to a group and you rehearse, and you get good actors, and they say, "I don't think I would say it this way." And how would you say it then? And then you say it that way, and go, "Yeah, you know what? That's better than the way I wrote it." And that's that's a lot of times how theater collaboration works for somebody to make an an offensive choice that so that the audience is offended has to get past a lot of people which means that somebody probably had a lot of power and and that's why it happened
1: that's sort of interesting though to think about that maybe teaching a drama course you can bring in those issues of collaboration and kind of break that myth of the solitary genius just (laughs) working in a vacuum
2: well, it, you know, it has to start off with, you've got somebody like Tennessee Williams, who is that solitary genius, and you know, he wrote uh, every morning. The thing about Williams was, uh, I remember, he first wrote short stories. His plays didn't start as plays, most of them didn't. He wrote short stories, and then this short story would blend with that one and it become, become a bigger short story, and then a bigger short story, and then it would become a play. That was some of his process, which which is kind of like Henry Miller would say my job is to put a novel on stage, but I've got to do it with dialogue. The theater is like that. Yeah. You get, you get these other people, you've got a director who comes in and the director is really, really important, especially for new playwrights. And one thing I mentioned that several of these playwrights, uh, got their way into the business through the, uh, the, the National Playwriting Competition. It's the Eugene O'Neill. It's the Eugene O'Neill National Playwriting mm. Competition. So every year, hundreds of people submit, and they pick 10, or at least they have been. I don't know what the pandemic has done to this. And they pick 10 for summer production with some of the best directors in theater. That's how uh, that's how August Wilson uh, made it into uh, his his way into theater. Tony Kushner Angels in America, he made it that way. David Henry Quang, they were all winners that first were first produced at the Eugene O'Neill National Playwriting Competition. And yes, I have entered two or three times and no, I haven't gotten a play. <laughs> not yet, again. not yet. But I'm going to try again.
0: Uh, I, have, I'm, I have another question. It's a little bit, like it's moving us in a little bit of a different direction. But mm-hmm. you've been talking about um, the drama class that you, you taught, which was strictly drama, right? Survey sort of style course. So but I'm imagining, and I could be wrong, that you've taught drama in some of the other classes you've had before as well. Like, so I'm thinking like introduction to literature. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've taught any drama in that class, or even if, if you haven't, and someone wanted to do that, what kind of recommendations would you give, right? If they wanted to have a
2: unit on drama. Yeah, so I taught an introductory literature class and it was a composite of genres. Uh, We did, I did one of uh, Tony Morrison's novels. We did Ariel by Sylvia Sylvia Plath.
1: And we also did
2: Top Dog, Underdog by Susan Laurie Parks. Okay. And I think the reason I wanted to pick that is that there's so much cursing in it. Hmm. And, and it's great when you can say some of those lines in your class and it goes, like, guys, it's here on the page. I'm going to repeat this to you right now. And you say it and they're all going, he just said that. It's, it's, there's so much good cursing in it because you've got these two brothers who are named Booth and Lincoln. And you know it's not going to go well when you've got two brothers named Booth yeah. and Lincoln. And Lincoln is a Lincoln reenactor at an arcade where people pay to pretend they are John Wilkes Booth shooting him in the back of the head. Oh my God. And that's his day job. And Booth is a scoundrel, he's a con man, he's a thief. Lincoln is living with him on his couch while he's trying to find an apartment because he, he needs a place to stay. Uh, and it's, it's really, uh, I, I wanted to see that in, in that introductory literature class, the theater can be fun, especially with the language that you don't have to hold back. I mean, there's all these things that you want to say in real life, but you can't say them. But you can say them through characters. You go, know, "Well, that's the character saying that. That's not me." And I would do that in the introductory literature class. I would, I would have that one play. Now, I think you couldn't go wrong with Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't, you couldn't go wrong with uh, Raisin in the Sun. You, you couldn't go wrong with one of Sam Shepard's plays.
0: I guess I want to ask even more questions. Like, if you were teaching a women in literature class, what play would you teach in that? If you could only teach one play in that class.
2: I'm such a Susan Lori Parks fan. I've read everything she's, she's done, so I, she's just my go-to. But uh, the other ones I teach, I, I, Lorraine Hansberry is, she's such a good writer, and it's significant because 1959, and she got some recognition, but she deserves so much more recognition. So historically, it's important. And I also teach Carol Churchill, Cloud Nine. Carol Churchill's fun because in the stage directions, a young girl plays the young boy a a man plays the wife and they did that one at fsu that year and you've got this guy in a who in real life has a full beard and he's playing the wife all dressed up with these and it's really fun and carol churchill intended it that way with these cross-gender acting matches that adds that other layer to to the play because the play's about among other things, women's rights.
1: Well, you brought up Susan Laurie Parks and I've only read one of her plays, but it was for my freshman English class, which was Venus, which I think overall the class didn't know what to make of it, but I have never been able to stop thinking about it. But I'm bringing it up because I think it's a work that, for me as a literature person, I'm like, how would I teach this? Because so much of what it does is, seems to be part of the page. Like, I don't know if if you've read it, but the scenes count down backwards rather than, so instead of like scene one, scene two, scene three, it's five, four, three, two, one, like counting down towards the end. I'm like, well, how do you translate that to the stage? And like, how would I talk to my students about these like choices she's making in the writing that wouldn't be seen? I, I don't know if that, yeah that,
2: that's what with the with play the strange like a carol churchill play or or even a couple of others of susan Laurie parks i think the the best way into them is in class reading because that's the way that actors are going to start they're going to start memorizing their lines but they're also going to be these informal readings where they're reading them to each other and getting a feel for what the the play is about so i think the, the way the first way in is reading them with somebody else the decisions for the stage they come over a period of time. There there are actors choices, there are directors choices, and hopefully there's some kind of good dance of those decisions where everything works out. One of the things I was taught in acting class when you get a play or a film script is that you mark out all the suggestions by the writer that says, He said happily, she said angrily, Mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things, which most good playwrights don't put in there Mm -hmm. because the dialogue should indicate that. The the emotion of the dialogue should indicate whether the character is angry or happy or sad. And that's what the dialogue has to carry that, has to do that kind of work.
0: So, Renzi, feel like I've learned so much from talking to you about like teaching drama and like you there so much more that like I want to know now um just from this conversation Mm -hmm. but I wanted to kind of pin you down a little bit to ask like what advice or like resources like if you had a go-to for like graduate students or early career professionals who don't have your kind of extensive background in in understanding drama and the ins and outs of it but still want to incorporate a play into their course like introduction to literature like you get you've given us some recs for things like plays to include but do you have any like I would go to this website to learn something, or this is the textbook I would use, or like, how would you get started, right? Um, in terms of trying to start incorporate, incorporating drama in your teaching.
2: Yeah, I think if you're gonna teaching modern drama, the best way, the best resource is the uh, second volume of the Norton uh, Anthology of Drama. Okay. It's uh, There's that section that t- talks about how to read a play, but there's a whole, there's a long introductory section about the uh, history of modern drama and all the people involved in that. And then before every play, there is a bio of the playwright and also of the politics and what the playwright was dealing with at the time that might be a part of the play. So I think the, the Norton Anthology of Drama second volume is the first way in. And hopefully you can get that in your department or somewhere and you don't have to buy it Uh, Then there are a lot of good websites. The uh, American Theater Magazine is uh, a good website. They stay up on what is happening today, as far as the business of theater, which is very tough right now with the pandemic. Um, And who's making what kinds of decisions as far as artistic directors and what plays are going to be on the next season. And how are they going to do them through virtual performances and all of that kinds of stuff? Um, I did want to say one thing before I forget about this about the business of theater. Yeah, I, I try to I, I point this out to my students because I want them to not think that these are well. Most actors don't make a lot of money, but there's there tends, there can be a lot of money in theater, especially Broadway. Broadway costs tens of thousands of dollars a week to produce. But there's also a lot of money that can be made in it. The, uh, Arthur Miller, do you guys know who Arthur Miller's third wife was? Yeah.
1: Marilyn Monroe.
2: Marilyn Monroe. Uh, and you know, I don't want to be, well, let's just say it's because he was an intelligent man. But he also had a lot of money. And they worked together on a, a movie together. And uh, they were married for five years. He ended up writing a play about her after her death, uh, Arthur Miller was a millionaire who wrote stage plays. And then um, Tennessee Williams, you know you know the story about his sister who in real life had a lobotomy and the glass menagerie is about her. Mm-hmm. And she was institutionalized and cared for and his will, uh, the glass menagerie was left to take care of. She, she survived. His death. She was in an institution for a long time, and that one play. The uh, value of that one play was somewhere like around eight million dollars. Wow. Mm-hmm. That one play, and that's what how she was taken care of. in the, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get bogged down and say that uh, theater is all about money,
0: mm-hmm. but
2: it's, <laughs> it's, but it's about uh, it's like film. It takes a certain amount of money to put on a good production. And even if you, you find that a film was made on a $300,000 budget, which by most film standards is very, very low, that's still a lot of money. Uh, and, um, but there's an opportunity for it. So it has to be a commercial venture. I think if you make bad decisions on theater, you're not gonna make your money back. So it it is. So you're saying,
1: so you're saying we should end our drama courses with the screening of the producers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. At the end of the day, it's a commercial decision. You've got to look at who your ticket holders are, who are the patrons who buy the season tickets every year. Uh, How am I? What what four plays can I get them here with? And then I'm going to put in the one that's not exactly for them, but I'm going to try and broaden their horizons a little bit. It, it is a commercial endeavor, theater is, but hopefully first it's an artistic endeavor.
0: So let's talk about your artistic endeavors. Uh, have you thought about, or would you ever consider combining your, your love of poetry, right, you were just talking to us before we started recording about reading a new poetry collection every week and drama in one class. Like, is there some way that those two worlds could overlap?
2: Uh, I think the most obvious is are Yates and Elliot.
0: Uh-huh. Mm.
2: They both did uh, prose poetry plays.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They aren't produced very often because they aren't that fun.
1: Yates's plays are not that great. Yeah. <laughs> that was my master's thesis. And that was yeah. part of my takeaway. I was like, great poet. Not great playwright.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know the thing with Shakespeare. But they're fun,
1: they're really interesting.
2: Shakespeare was is the most beautiful iambic pentameter ever in the history of language. Uh and plus it was entertaining. Entertaining Mm -hmm. so Marlowe was uh entertaining as well, but Shakespeare was just a beautiful writer. He could put more in one line with that form of iambic pentameter than anyone. Um I don't know of any good. Prose, poetry, plays.
0: I guess, like I also was wondering about, like how you could teach a class, like a themed class, uh, like family, right? Like you said, a lot of your po- your a lot of your plays that you chose for your your drama class had this overarching theme of family, um, and what it would it be valuable or could it be valuable to look at family in like plays and poetry like is there some way to pair some of those things together even if you know they're different authors or creators i don't know that's something to think about
2: yeah i, I would it would come back to yates and Elliot for me i suppose um and both of them were more entertaining with their poetry
0: <laughs> yeah so margaret do you have any questions for ramsey
1: um no now I'm just thinking uh Ramsey you really have me thinking about um Hollywood and theater and all the pairings you could do with that with like um like the T- the Tennessee Williams films because um, we've talked with you not being recorded before about uh censorship and how that affects different publications and I was thinking about uh, Tennessee Williams have how, uh, how when his plays were turned into movies, they had to change so much. Um, yeah, and and just thinking about that with like Faulkner and and other playwrights who kind of turned to Hollywood to make some more money. <laughs> um, and it's just got my brain going, but it's not generating a question. Um, well, the same or, thing or happened or for Lorraine.
2: To- Lorraine Hansberry, her play when it went to film, uh, they had to cut out. The censors mm-hmm. that were still around at that time cut out parts of the script that they thought would have made the white people nervous and look bad, which they were. They were yeah. they weren't the bad guy, and yeah. uh, the film was was hugely successful, primarily because of a white audience, mm-hmm. uh, and it made a lot of money. Uh, the uh, the only one that I can think of that never allows anything to be changed, and I mentioned this a while ago, is uh, David Mamet. And part of that is that he produces and directs them himself,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which is about the only way you can get complete power. Uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross is, was a stage play of his that was successful, and then it was made into a movie uh and th- this is the thing that when you move from stage to movie there's a there's a trick to making it feel like you're not on the stage the entire movie so that the audience gets boring bored and he he walks a fine line with the movie and pulls it off i've seen some productions that don't don't pull it off but the uh, Al Pacino was in that movie, Alec Baldwin, Jack Lemmon, Kevin Spacey, um, every, every top male actor, white actor at the time was in the movie. And it was word for word what David Mamet put on the page. So I think you gotta have producer power and director power when you're moving to film, if you're gonna get what you want, if you're gonna do it yourself.
0: And so not to put you too much on the spot, Mm -hmm. but yes, to put you on the spot. (laughs) Ramsey, what would your dream course be? uh, If you could just think about everything you learned teaching drama before and do whatever you wanted, no holds barred for your dream course in drama, what would it be?
2: Uh, It would be a two semester course. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the first semester I'd do it like I did the last time and where I we, we read 14 or 15 plays and they were required to write and perform. Well, they didn't perform, write a 10-minute play. Okay. So that was the second semester would be uh, fewer plays, maybe four or five or six plays. And it would be a writing class where they wrote a a one-act play, say, uh, 40 pages or 50 pages.
0: That sounds amazing. That would be awesome. Um, well,
2: get me that job, and
0: I'll, and I'll I know like, like, for an honors college, you know? Um, that would be yeah. really wonderful. Like, interdisciplinary, you could pitch it as, like, a hist- history English, sort of.
2: Well, you need to get that position so I can pitch that to you, and you can hire me to do it.
0: I mean, you know, uh, we can dream, right?
1: That's the whole point of a drink
2: course, yeah.
0: Yes, (laughs) Ramsay. Thank you so much for coming. This was great.
2: Thank you for inviting me to your tiny, tiny desk.
0: Yes, you're welcome. welcome. (laughs) Okay,
1: we we hope you are able to leave the interweb safely today. On (laughs) to go back to Florida, (laughs) and not a play, but lots of film adaptations. So maybe there's some connection there. But um, this season, semester of Literaturely, um, we are ending with a book club discussing the approaches to teaching Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and other works. It's edited by Sharon R. Wilson, Thomas B. Friedman, and Shannon Hengen, um, and it's just all about how to teach the different works of Atwood, what approaches you can take, um, um, teaching aids, different materials, etc. There is going to be a new edition released uh, soonish, I believe. Um, so we thought this was sort of a good text to pick up. It allows a lot of uh, different lenses, fields, lots of interdisciplinary possibilities. Um, so we are telling y'all now. So if you want to get a copy and join our book club, give us your thoughts, questions comments own experience teaching at wood we'd love to talk about it all um we are also posting pictures and more information on our social media like instagram and twitter so you can check it out there see what book it is get more information and we'll keep giving y'all reminders and updates on it as we get closer awesome perfect and
0: that's us for today yeah see you next time